this morning. And I do want to say one thing really quick. I'm kind of disappointed in Rick right now. And the reason is, is because I thought that because of Rick, I now had license to wear shorts on stage. But apparently I don't. Apparently that's still frowned upon. So I will not wear shorts on stage. But either way, Rick and Carl made it look good. And when they run 15 and a half miles, they can wear whatever they want, honestly. So glad that you're here to worship with us here this morning. If you are here for the first time, we are in week six of a seven-week series going through the book of James. And we've discussed quite a bit so far up to this point. James has leveled quite a few challenges at us as followers of Christ. He's leveled quite a few challenges at this community that he's writing to. He's challenged them to let their faith infiltrate every area of life, not just one little compartmentalized area of life, but every aspect of life, every relationship, every decision, every priority. And last week, we saw that the community wasn't always good at that. And we can understand because we're not always good at it either. In James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, we talked about quarrels and fights that were happening in this community. And the community was certainly under a lot of pressure. They were facing famine. They were facing persecution by those who had more wealth than they did. They were facing lawsuits they could never answer to. So you'd understand why there might be some quarrels and fights. Things are a little bit tense in the community. But it's not just tension that seems to be causing these quarrels and these fights. There seems to be a spirit of jealousy and a spirit of selfishness that is happening in this community. Whether it's jealousy of possessions or position or reputation or power or influence, it doesn't matter. Jealousy and selfishness are pervading every aspect of this community. And James's antidote for this selfishness, for this jealousy, is humility. He tells the community, humble yourself before God. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. He says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He tells them to cleanse their hands. He calls them sinners. He tells them to purify their hearts, to stop being double-minded people with divided interests. And James says all these things, and they sound harsh. But James doesn't say these things to make his audience feel hopeless. He doesn't say these things to make his audience feel terrible about themselves. He does say it to make them recognize they're hopeless, but he doesn't leave them there. That's the thing. He doesn't want them to remain hopeless. He challenges them to find their hope in Christ, to be honest about who they are, to be honest about how messed up they are and how flawed they are, and to turn to Christ the way Paul does in Romans 7. The solution is humility. And when this humility is happening, when God is giving this humility to those who seek him, then the community can be united the way it wasn't before. Now today we're going to pick up in James chapter 4, Verse 13, we're going to finish out chapter 4 and go into chapter 5 as well, so be ready for that. But before we get into that, will you pray with me as we jump into James? Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with. Thank you for the beautiful, beautiful weather that we have outside. Thank you that the seasons are going to be changing here soon and that we're going to be able to see firsthand the beauty of your creation as the leaves change and as the leaves fall. God, I pray that we will look to you for all things in life. 
that we will always be dependent upon you no matter how well we think we're doing on our own. That we will never forget how much we need you. God, keep us humble individually and keep us humble as a church. Help us to avoid the quarrels and the fights that so easily happen in families and friendships and in churches. God, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that he broke his body and shed his blood on the cross for me and for everyone here. God, we love you. We thank you for Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to James chapter 4, verse 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of the Bibles on the bottom of the chair in front of you or somewhere around you. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that Bible home with you. We want you to take that home with you. That way you do have your own Bible. We'll also have verses up on the screen if you'd like to follow along that way. So James chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James is speaking to these entrepreneurs And they seem to have this plan set in place. They know where they're going to go. They know what they're going to do there. They know how long they're going to stay there. And they even are so bold to say that they know what their success rate is going to be. They say, not only do we know where we're going, how long we're going to be there, and what we're going to do there, but we are confident that we're going to make a profit. We know exactly how this is going to work. And James criticizes these entrepreneurs. Well, why would he criticize them? There's nothing wrong with planning in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with profit. That's kind of the whole idea of business. So what's there to criticize? Well, look at verse 14. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. Your life is a mist. It's a puff of smoke. And these guys don't really seem to realize that. They've got it all figured out. They're totally independent. They know what comes next. They know what the plan is for their lives, and they know exactly what tomorrow will bring. That seems to be the attitude they have. And yet these guys don't seem to realize just how fragile their plans are. All of our plans are so fragile because we never know what will come next. Look at Psalm 39, verses 5 and 6. The psalmist writes, Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths. Depending on the translation you're using, it may say width of a hand. If you look at my hand, I have girly hands. That's not very long. That's the idea. A few hand breaths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they're in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Our lives can be gone. Just like the breath when it's cold outside. We see it for a second, and then it vanishes into thin air. One of my best friend's father was in a motorcycle accident this past week, 
And he's been in the hospital for about three days now. He's going to be in the hospital for another three or four days. But he's expected to make a full recovery. He was airlifted from the crash scene. It really didn't look good. And I guarantee you their family can probably connect with this verse right now. Because they probably had lots of plans. They probably had plans for what they were going to do later that day, what they were going to do later that week, what they were going to do later that month, what was going to happen. They were in control. And then something unexpected comes, and all of a sudden, we're forced to realize just how delicate our lives are and just how contingent our plans are. But unfortunately, sometimes it takes something like that to help us realize just how fragile our lives and our plans are. Because our lives are like a mist. And the problem with these guys is they don't seem to realize that. They're planning as if God isn't even there. They're planning as if they don't need him. Because they have everything they need. And how often do we do the same thing? We plan for what's going to come next in our job. We plan for what's going to come next with our families. We plan with what's going to come next for our kids, whether it's sending them through college or kids plan for how they're going to pay for their own college. We have all these plans, and how often do we sit back and realize just how fragile they are? And how often, if we're honest with ourselves, would we sit back and say, you know, I have all these plans, but at no point have I consulted God in these plans. I've got this all figured out on my own. But what's God's thought on this? Verse 15 says, if the Lord wills, we'll live this and do do this and do that. And if you've ever grown up in the church, you may have heard people say this a lot. I remember as a kid, I would hear older folks typically say, well, see you at the restaurant here in a few minutes, Lord willing. Or they'll say, well, I'll see you tomorrow at that meeting, Lord willing. And here's the thing. It's well-intentioned. And I'm not trying to make fun of those people, but I think sometimes we let that become just a routine. We feel like we have to say it in front of everything, and that's not really the point that James is saying. James is not saying that you have to add this little disclaimer with every single sentence that you say, or else you're not a good Christian. James is rather saying that you need to realize that you're not in as much control as you think you are. And you don't have as much say in what comes next as you think you do. Because there's a bigger planner at work than you, whose plans are better than yours are. And you need to keep that in mind with what your life brings next. Well, pick up in verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. When you combine these two verses, and then what we're going to look like at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5, you may see that James seems to believe that not only are these guys making all their plans, not only do these guys think they're independent, but maybe they're going about their plans in a little less than honest way. Maybe they're being a little bit dishonest about how they're going to make this profit. Maybe they're treating people a little bit unjustly. Maybe they're not exactly going about this business the way they should. Because James seems to say that they're not doing something that they're called to be doing. Now this gets into the question of the sins of commission and the sins of omission. Two common categories of sin. A sin of commission is an active sin that you are participating in. 
It's like if God says, don't lie, and you lie. God says, don't steal, and you steal. God says, don't touch that tree, and you touch that tree. That is an act of commission. It is an active sin. So what is a sin of omission? Well, the idea of a sin of omission is not that you're actively doing something wrong, but rather that you're choosing not to do something right. A sin of omission, a good example of it, would be the priest in the story of the Good Samaritan. The priest sees the beat-up man on the side of the road, knows that he should help him, and what does the priest do? He crosses over on the other side. He pretends the guy's not there. He pretends not to see him. Jesus, in Matthew 25, talks about how if you don't help the poor, don't help the naked, don't help the hungry, don't help those who are in prison, then guess what? You might as well not be helping me. That's a sin of omission, not doing the right thing when you know God calls you to do it. So what's the sin of omission that's happening in James chapter 4 and in the first few verses of James chapter 5? Well, look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Bold statements from James here. He says the rich should weep and howl because they're laying up treasures in the last days. Now, in the New Testament, when you see the term last days, it's referring to the time between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return, which hasn't happened yet. And so we're living in the last days just as these people in James' audience were living. And they're laying up treasures in the present. They're laying up treasures in the now. And the criticism there is that just like the men who have all their little plans, the entrepreneurs who know exactly what comes next, these people, you and I, sometimes we take the short-term view. We look at life as though all there is is birth to death. And we don't really seem to take the long-term view. That there's something that comes after death. Something that's longer and more important, and actually it's eternal. Do we look at the long view? These people certainly aren't. And you can tell that by how they spend their money. The possessions that they are treasuring. The priority that they place upon stuff. That's the criticism. So what is James saying? Is he saying that if you have stuff that you're automatically a bad Christian? Is he saying that if you have a certain amount of money in your bank account, you're automatically disqualified for faith? No. The real danger here, the real danger that we are all susceptible to if we're not careful, is what these things 
can do to us. Ultimately, like every sin, it comes back to the heart. James says that the silver and the gold, the garments, they won't last. They'll be corroded. They'll fade away. They'll tarnish. They'll be outdated. And the problem is that in the same way that the gold and silver can be corroded by time, the gold and silver, they can corrode us little by little. As we continue placing our priorities just a little bit more on stuff and things, as we continue looking at the short term and living as if all we have is this life and let's live it up, the corrosion happens. It's not overnight. It may not be noticeable after a few days or a week or a month. But all of a sudden, you sit back and you look around and you say, man, look at what I've collected. Look at all the treasures I've laid up. Does that really seem to show a long-term view? Many of the Egyptian pharaohs, when they died, they would be buried in their tombs with all their stuff. Chariots, anything you can think of. Even servants sometimes would be buried with their pharaohs. Because these Egyptian pharaohs thought that, you know, I might need this stuff in the next life. When I die, I'm going to need a good chariot to ride around in, right? I mean, you've got to have a chariot. Well, they didn't exactly take the long-term view. They kind of did. But they thought their treasures would last. And James is saying they won't. Jesus doesn't say anything different at all. Look at Luke 6, 24 through 25. Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich! For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Strong statements. But even then, it's not the only one Jesus makes. Look at Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It comes back to the heart. Where are our hearts at? Do our hearts only look at the short term? Or do they look at what comes next? Because the things that this world offers, they don't have a place in the long-term view. They have no place in what comes next, contrary to what the Egyptian pharaohs may have thought. Take the long view. Don't take the short view. And when we allow our riches to corrode us, when they slowly but surely poison our hearts, and they become the main priority, what do we do? We're like an addict. All of a sudden, we have to have more and more and more. No matter what that means, we have to do to get it. Because we constantly keep building up this immune system. And nothing is ever good enough. And we always have to have the next nicest thing, the next biggest thing, the next most expensive house or car or clothes. And as a result, we end up doing things that we probably aren't proud of. We treat people unjustly, as we see in verse 4. We live in self-indulgence, and we're fattening our hearts 
for a day of slaughter. What are our riches doing to us? What does our wealth do to us? What do our possessions do to us? And what do our possessions say about whether or not we're looking in the short term or the long term? That's the question we ultimately have to ask ourselves. Picking up in verse 7 of James chapter 5, James moves into a different little point here. He starts giving advice to the Christians who don't have these things. Advice to the Christians who don't have any treasures here on earth. And they're being abused by the ones who do. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James tells his audience that, you know what, guys? The treasures that you should be laying up, they're not going to provide immediate satisfaction. It's not going to be instant gratification. You're like that farmer who puts down that seed, and the farmer doesn't go out the next morning and expect something to have grown and provide food for his family. No, it's little by little. Patience. Trust that God will make something happen with the treasures that you don't see now. But they're worth the wait. And then James specifically cites Job. Now, if you've read the story of Job, Job was a righteous man. Did everything the way he was supposed to do, was honest, was forthright, treated people justly and fairly, loved God, repented of sin when it came, even repented of sin that his children did for their sake, hoping that that would somehow help them. Job was the shining example of what God would want someone to be. But what happens to Job? He loses everything. There's a little plan at work that he can't see behind the scenes, a little deal between God and Satan. And as a result of this plan, Job loses his family. Job loses his friends. Job loses his reputation. He, lives, he loses his house, loses his livestock. Everything you can think of, it's gone like a mist, like a puff of smoke. What does Job do? He complains. He definitely looks for answers. He doesn't sit there and put on a happy face and say, you know what, everything's great. He doesn't do that at all. He's honest with God. He does want answers. He rejects the accusations that there's some sort of hidden sin that his friends accuse him of that he needs to just repent of and be honest about, and then everything will go back to normal. Everything will be great again. Job denies all that stuff. But in the midst of his complaints, in the midst of his arguments, in the midst of his despair and his sorrow and the chaos in his life, at no point does Job ever truly abandon God. Look at Job 19, 25 through 27. For I know that my Redeemer lives, 
and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Job lost everything. All the short-term treasures, the treasures that this life can offer, they're gone. But at no point does Job ever truly lose sight of the treasures in the long term. He never loses sight of the fact that that little seed of faith and obedience and humility and love for God, eventually something will come out of it. Something will grow. And he's confident that even though his treasures on earth fail, the treasure that comes next will not fail. So what is James's main advice to these people who are suffering, these people who are struggling? His main piece of advice is be patient. Be like Job. Keep your eyes on the treasures that come next. And don't worry about somehow trying to obtain the treasures that come in this life. Now, you notice what Job's advice isn't. Job's advice is to be patient, to look for the treasures that come. Job's advice is not have enough faith that maybe you'll get those things after all. There's a big movement over the past 20 years called the prosperity gospel that teaches that, you know, if you just have enough faith, if you obey enough, then God is somehow obligated to bless you. God is obligated to give you a new car. He's obligated to give you a job promotion. He's obligated to give you a bigger house. But guess what? The prosperity gospel that is taught by Joel Osteen, that is taught by Joyce Meyer, it's a lie. And it's not a gospel at all. It's extortion. It's extortion of God. It's the attitude that somehow if I can do enough, then God owes me something. It's the exact opposite of the humility we talked about last week. James's audience is not challenged to have more faith, to try and make sure God gives you these things, to have a positive attitude and a positive mindset. No. Job's advice, James's advice, is be patient because those treasures aren't worth it anyway. Focus on the treasures that come next, and it'll be worth your weight. He closes in verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or any oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Job's point, once again, don't try to obtain this stuff. Don't get yourself in a situation where you're selling out for these things. Be honest. Be just. Trust that these things are going to pay off and trust that your treasures and the life that is to come are worth it. Trust that through God's grace, your endurance, your patience won't be in vain. Keep your priorities straight. Focus on the long view. Use the lens of eternity to evaluate your life. So what does that mean for us? We're often guilty of laying up treasures in the last days. Maybe it means that we learn to cut back a little bit on the things that don't last so that we can invest in some things that do last, helping those around us, 
adopting a child through some sort of compassion or world vision organization. Maybe it's helping someone who's being treated unjustly, serving those around us, giving to our church. Invest in the long term. Focus on those treasures. Jesus says that it will be worth it. Closing out today, look at Mark 8, 34 through 37, one of the classic passages of Jesus' teaching. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return? For his soul. Let's focus on the long term. The long term focus of following Christ may not involve the treasures of this life. And that's okay. Because the treasures that Christ offer are better anyway. Let's focus on the cross. Let's pick up our crosses. Let's constantly keep in mind that something comes next. That the cross means something. That his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us so that we can look to the treasures that come next with confidence. And when we realize that, when we see that treasure, that Christ died for our sins to reconcile us with God, the treasures of this life, it doesn't take time to corrode them. It doesn't take moths to corrode them. When we place them next to the treasures of Christ, the treasures of heaven, we'll realize just how corroded they are already. Let's pray. Father God, this is tough to hear because we are all well off. In the big scheme of things, anyone who's in this room, God, we're all incredibly materially blessed to be where we are. And God, we are incredibly, incredibly grateful and thankful for that. But at the same time, God, we are tempted to lift those things above you. To lift gift above giver. God, I pray that you'll give us a lens that will look at life not just in birth to death, building up as many things as we can to make us as happy as we can possibly be in the short time that we have. But God, I pray that we will focus on the treasures that Jesus calls us to lay up. Treasures that corrosion can't touch, that rust can't taint, that moths can't eat. I pray that we will focus on you. Because the treasures that you offer, the grace that you offer, the forgiveness and the mercy that you extend to us right now, they're worth it. They're worth the wait. God, I pray those will be our main priorities. Keep us humble. Keep us looking for you in all things. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you have looked at the things the world has to offer, if you've looked at the treasures of this life, the gold and the silver and the garments, and you've realized that, you know what, these things are never going to fulfill me, talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing on the side of the room. They'd be happy to talk to you 
about placing your faith in Christ. They'd be happy to talk to you about what that all means. They'd be happy to answer questions about our church. They'd be happy to pray with you over anything that you may have going on. Take advantage of that.